Well, good morning and happy New Year, Horizon. You know, chances are, as this new year has begun, you've probably picked up the paper and read about something terrible that's happened somewhere in the world. I mean, you and I live in a world where no matter how you live your life, bad things happen, even to good people. Like maybe a drunk driver walks away from an accident while the family grieves the loss of a loved one. Or maybe it's a sense of regret. Uh, It kind of slips through your mind, uh, stealing your joy and then making you wish your life was different than the way it is. Or it could be a boss who's out to get you. And you get laid off and through no fault of your own, you're without a job. And now your family is having to wrestle with making the ends meet financially. I mean, we live in a world that has been cursed by sin, so bad things happen, no matter how you try to orchestrate your life. In fact, Tim Hansel understood how difficult life could be. Uh, Hansel was a football player at Stanford, and upon graduation, he um, became an outdoor adventurer and the founder of Summit Expeditions, a ministry focused on teenagers. While doing the love of his life, mountain climbing in the northern Sierras, Hansel lost his footing and fell off a cliff a hundred feet down and landed flat on his back. He survived the fall, but he crushed a number of vertebrae in his back. And so now pain is Tim's constant companion, excruciating pain. In his book, You've Got to Keep Dancing, Uh, Hansel makes a statement about living in a world where bad things happen to good people. He says, pain is inevitable, but misery is optional. And then he draws the conclusion, therefore, I choose joy. You see, you and I live in a world where pain and difficulty and disappointment cannot be avoided, but we can't avoid joy. And so Hansel makes the statement that he chooses joy. Now, the question I have is, where does that kind of joy come from? Well, that's what the book of Philippians is all about. In fact, it was written by a man who is well acquainted with difficulty and pain in life. In fact, the author tells us that five times he received 39 lashes. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned and left for dead. Three times he was shipwrecked. Once he was set afloat in the ocean for a day and a half. He has forded rivers and fended off robbers. He struggled with uh, friends and scuffled with foes. He's even felt betrayed by those he thought were his brothers. And through it all, he has an incurable illness. Now, you probably know exactly who I'm talking about. The Apostle Paul. In fact, he identifies himself in the very first verse of the first chapter of this book to the church at Philippi. In fact, turn there with me to Philippians 1.1, and let's see what Paul has to say about joy, the kind of joy that transcends circumstances. Notice he begins in verse 1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, you may be familiar with the Apostle Paul, and if you remember, he was a man who left the security and popularity of a safe career in the synagogue and chose a life that resulted in harassment and mistreatment. Now, what you may not know about Paul is that when he writes this letter to the Philippians, he is in prison. In fact, he spent two years in the dungeons of Caesarea. Then he was extradited to Rome, and for two years he has been under house arrest, chained to a Roman guard who's been his constant companion for 24 hours a day. Now, if you were in that situation, what would be the tone of the letter you would write? I mean, what would you say to your friends back in Philippi? I mean, I find it amazing that... Rather than wallowing in self-pity or calling for his friends to help him escape, Paul talks about, of all subjects, joy. In fact, the words joy and rejoice are repeated 16 times in four short chapters throughout the letter. Those words are mentioned in Philippians more than any other book in the entire New Testament. And as we study this letter over the next few months, Uh, we'll begin to see that Paul's perspective will help us begin to understand how we begin delighting in life when things don't go the way we think they should. Now, the kind of joy Paul speaks of here in the book of Philippians is different from the way we normally think about joy. Uh, When when we talk, uh, we, we use the word joy and happiness interchangeably, don't we? We use them like they're the same, but they are not the same. I mean, happiness is circumstantial. Happiness is based upon happenings. I pay off the loan on my car. I'm happy. I buy a new shirt. I'm happy. Someone says something nice about me and I hear about it. I'm happy. Now, there's nothing wrong with happiness, but the problem with happiness is that circumstances, they tend to shift. Now, on the other hand, joy is different. Joy defies circumstances. Joy occurs in spite of difficulties. Where happiness is a feeling, Paul understood joy to be a choice. Now, choosing joy doesn't mean you you paste on an artificial smile and you pretend things are going well. It doesn't mean you laugh force yourself to laugh even though things aren't going the way you want them to in your life. Rather, choosing joy is really a matter of perspective. It's a lot like sailing. Now, after Patty and I were married, we spent our very first vacation in Lake Nebagaman in northern Wisconsin at a cabin Patty had grown up in as a little girl. And it was there she taught me how to sail. Now, the thing that fascinated me about sailing that I really didn't understand is how a boat pointed into the wind coming against it could actually be propelled forward by the very wind that was coming against it. And Patty explained to me that when uh, the sailboat points into the wind, it's called a closed hull. And what takes place when you point into the wind is that there is an interaction between the angle of the sail and the direction of the wind. 
and the resistance of the keel below the waterline, all three work together to form a path of least resistance that propels that boat forward. In fact, a sailor who doesn't pay attention to the direction of the wind and his sail, uh, all a sailboat will do is flounder. It takes both. I love the way one poet put it. He said, one ship sails east, one ship sails west, regardless of how the wind blows. It's the set of the sail and not the gale that determines the way it goes. You see, in the midst of difficulty, Paul knew how to set his sails toward joy. And as we examine this letter of just a mere 104 verses, we will discover that joy is a matter of perspective. In fact, the first perspective is found in the verse that follows. Look at verse 3. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, you need to know that when Paul, of all the letters Paul wrote, this letter to the Philippians is his most personal one. And if you remember the book of Acts when we studied it, uh, his visit to Philippi was anything but uneventful. In fact, several years ago, my son Josh and I got to visit the ancient city of Philippi. The pictures you see, you'll see on the screen uh, are of that visit. And while there, I learned that Philippi was, right, which is located here, is actually the largest city in the province of Macedonia. And this is all located in what is modern-day Greece today. Now, Philippi was uh, founded on the Roman road that heads from east or from west to east, and we got to see that as we uh, examined Philippi. But the thing that distinguished Philippi from all other cities is that this city was designated a Roman colony. Now, if you were a Roman colony, it afforded the citizens of Philippi uh, several uh, benefits, two to be specific. I mean, first, they had autonomous government. And secondly, they were immune from taxes of Rome. So you can imagine people moved into Philippi from Rome, Roman citizens, to be immune from taxes. It was also a, a military outpost and became kind of a retirement community for the military uh, later on in life. Now, this city, Philippi, is the very first city Paul visits when he goes to Europe. And when he visits Philippi, he discovers there's no synagogue there. Apparently, there weren't enough Jewish men to form a synagogue. It takes ten to form a synagogue. And so Paul immediately heads down to the river that ran north of the city, and it's there he meets an impressive businesswoman. Her name was Lydia. And Lydia becomes a Christ follower in talking to Paul. Lydia introduces Paul to her family. They all become Christ followers, which is amazing. Uh, so he has an impact in this uh, city as these people come to know Christ and 
what ends up happening is the very first church plant in all of Europe is planted there in Lydia's home. Now, it's been 10 years since he visited uh, Philippi, and he's penning this letter. And you can tell by the words of his letter that he has a a fond affection for these people. His, His affection hasn't waned at all. Notice he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. As Paul thinks back about his time in Philippi and the people he met there, he's got fond memories. In other words, as he pins this, I picture Paul smiling. He, he has no regrets. There's no unresolved issues, which is amazing because when Paul was in Philippi, he had a run-in with a number of local citizens as well as the governmental officials. After removing uh, a demonic spirit from a slave girl in the marketplace, Paul and his companion Silas were immediately arrested while they were there. Uh, They were forced to stand before the magistrate. Then they were beaten in order uh, to satisfy the demands of those that were complaining against them. And that evening, they were thrown into prison. In fact, you can see the prison cell that they said Paul was kept in. I don't know if that's true, but it was something like that. And it just so happens as they're in the prison cell that night, nursing their wounds, Paul and Silas decide to hold an impromptu worship service. And as a result, the jailer becomes a Christ follower. The jailer introduces Paul to his family. They all become Christ followers. Paul insists on going back to jail where he's supposed to be. And the next morning, he informs the uh, officials, the governmental officials, that, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen. Did you know you beat a Roman citizen without a fair trial? Well, the government officials are scared that there might be reprisal coming from Rome, so they release Paul immediately and beg his forgiveness. So I find it amazing that Paul is not bitter or resentful over his mistreatment there in Philippi. But what I really want you to notice is what else he says in verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now notice, he who begins the good work is the one who completes it. Paul's confidence is not in himself. It's not even in his Roman citizenship. It's not in the people who go to the church in Philippi. His confidence is firmly planted in God. Now notice the words begun and complete. You find them on opposite ends of the continuum, don't you? Now, if you're a baseball fan, you know that when the guy who throws the first pitch in the game is the same guy who throws the last pitch in the game, he's pitched a complete game. In other words... The same guy has pitched all nine innings. That's called a complete game. Did you know complete games are rare these days? I mean, usually what happens in modern-day baseball is the guy who begins the game gets taken out after about five or six innings. And they have another pitcher come in, a relief pitcher, to finish out the game. 
I mean, having one guy pitch a complete game is a is very unusual in modern day baseball. Now, Roy Holiday with the Phillies was kind of an exception to that rule. Holiday was known as the complete game king. In fact, Holiday threw more complete games in a row than most pitchers in the major leagues throw in an entire career. Guess how many games Holiday has thrown in a row, complete games? Four. I told you it's a rarity. Now, it wasn't that way a hundred years ago. At the turn of the 20th century, around 1900, guess what was the record for complete games in a row thrown by a single pitcher? Ten? Fifteen? Maybe twenty? I mean, Holiday threw four. Jack Taylor threw 187. Wow! Now that is amazing. I mean, today we pay our pitchers $10 million a year and we don't let them finish. I mean, when you think about it, finishing is so rare in baseball, they've had to come up with another category just to encourage pitchers. It's called the category of quality starts. In other words, if you pitch for six straight innings and you only allow three or less earned runs, you've had a quality start. Now, that's encouraging, isn't it? Now, what Paul wants us to know is that God's not into quality starts. He's into complete games. And the good news of the gospel is God is the one who's doing the pitching. I mean, notice Paul says he's confident. So what exactly is Paul confident in? Well, he's confident that the God who has the power to change Pharaoh's heart, to split the Red Sea, to bring water out of a rock, to deliver three men from a fiery furnace, to deliver Daniel from the lion's den, who who can also turn water into wine, can... Stop the storm, walk on water, and rise from the dead is the same exact God who has the power to supply all you need to resist temptation, to love a difficult person, to endure suffering, and not give up. You see, what Paul wants us to know here in the text is God's not finished yet. In other words, you're a work in progress, and the good news of the gospel is that God's the one pitching and God only throws complete games. In other words, God is a finisher. And knowing that God's a finisher means that God's always at work in every circumstance, regardless of how difficult it is. He's at work when you don't think He's at work. He's at work when you don't even detect He's around. And remembering that God is at work lays the foundation here in the first few verses that Paul's going to build on throughout the book of Philippians, that God is at work and that becomes the foundation of joy. Now, Paul not only has fond memories of the Philippians and he not only has a firm confidence in God, but notice he also has a fervent affection. Verse 7 says, Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my hearts, 
inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Christ. Now it's obvious Paul not only had the Philippians on his mind, he had them in his heart. That word affection used in verse 8, did you know that Greek word literally means bowels or intestines? Isn't that weird? In, In ancient times, I mean, philosophers thought that the deepest of human emotions were found in the internal organs. So what Paul does is choose the most tender of words he could find to describe his affection for the people in Philippi. He says, my affection for you is so deep and caring that the most inner parts of my being are being impacted by it. So so if you have that kind of firm affection for a group of people, you don't find any trouble praying for them, do you? And that's exactly what Paul does next. Look at verse 9. It says, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things which are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Now, Paul already told them he's praying for them in verse 4. It's here that he tells them what he prays for them. And he prays that their love would flourish. Notice how he says it, that your love may abound more and more. That word abound was used in the first century to describe a, a flower beginning as an insignificant little bud and then growing into full and glorious bloom. I mean, can you see what Paul is saying here in the text? He's saying that he wants them to have the love of Christ, which is already in them, come to full expression through them. In other words, the love Paul speaks of here is a love that can only be expressed in action. And I also want you to notice that this love is not blind. Paul says for this kind of love to flow effectively, it has to be governed by two boundaries, two banks of a river, if you will. He says that this love must be governed by knowledge and discernment. And Paul knows that love by itself, if left to flow unchecked, unregulated, can actually be disastrous. I mean, love can act like hate if it refuses to think. You've all seen that. Parents that love their kids so much they spoil them rotten. Maybe an organization, a nonprofit that provides for the poor to the point that makes them dependent upon the organization rather than encouraging initiative. I mean, their heart's in the right place, but their actions... They hurt rather than help. And so Paul says, for love to be effective, it needs these two ingredients. Knowledge, by the way, that is knowledge that comes from experience. That's what the word means. And discernment, that comes from leaning into God and asking Him what He wants and what He thinks about this situation. I mean, it reminds me of the story of the prodigal son. I mean, when the son goes into the foreign country, it's 
seems as though the dad just knows intuitively that for his son to come home, he's got to come to the end of himself. And even though the dad has the means and the desire to go after the son and force him to come home, he doesn't, does he? He realizes that the son has to decide for himself. And when the son does decide to come home, all the means are at his disposal for help. You see, that's knowledge and discernment working together. Now, notice that for this love to be engaged properly, when it, when it is engaged properly, it results in two things. First, it says you will have a mature perspective. Paul put it this way, that you may approve the things which are excellent. You see, when you exercise love that's governed by knowledge and discernment, then you begin to develop the ability to distinguish between what matters and what just seems to matter. That's what Paul means by approving what is excellent. And secondly, you'll be without hypocrisy. Paul says that you may be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ. Now, that word sincere is quite interesting. It literally means to be without wax or to be sun-tested. In ancient times, a merchant uh, may try to pass off a cracked piece of pottery as a new piece of pottery. In order to do that, what they would do is take wax and fill in the crack so that it could not be detected and blended in to the rest of the pot. Now, if you were a wise shopper, you knew that before you pay for the pot, you take it out, you place it in the sunlight, and in less than three to five minutes in direct sun, that wax will begin to melt, exposing the crack and exposing the hypocrisy of the merchant. Now, can you see what Paul is saying there? He's saying if you love with knowledge and discernment, you are without wax. In other words, your true character begins to show through. You gain a reputation for being honest and authentic. That's what the word sincere is getting at. But what I want you to notice is that another result is that you will be filled with the fruits of righteousness. Before I tore my quad tendon, I used to run. And the thing I loved about running is you could do it, you know, without, with very little preparation in almost anywhere. Well, for years, I always ran by my route a pear tree. And during the winter of that pear tree, when it was just dormant, it was almost as if it were dead. But at the same time, every spring, I would notice that the buds would begin to enlarge on the pear tree. And then one day I'd run by and I'd see little blossoms beginning to emerge. And then I'd run by and it would be in full bloom. Now, it was then, every time I ran by, I had to be careful because there were bees all over the tree. And so you had to avoid it a little bit. And then after a couple of weeks, the blooms would fall off. And if you look closely uh, where the bud was, there would be the smallest of fruit. And through the spring, it would begin to enlarge and enlarge. And grow, and in the summer it would mature and ripen, and you could pick it and eat it. Now, in all the years of running by that pear tree, I never heard it groan or strain trying to produce fruit. Did you know fruit is the byproduct of something else? I mean, for pear, in a pear tree, it's the byproduct of three things. Right nutrition, right sunlight, and right water. When those three things are present, a pear tree doesn't strain to produce fruit. 
it naturally and spontaneously produces fruit. Now, that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying if you love well uh, with discernment and knowledge, you will naturally mature and fruit will spontaneously result. And if you hang on to the perspective he gave us in verse 6, one of those fruits is going to be joy. In fact, I want to read you the rest of the poem I read earlier. One ship sails east, one ship sails west, regardless of how the wind blows. It's the set of the sail and not the gale that determines the way it goes. Like the winds of the sea are the ways of fate. As we voyage along through life, Tis the set of the soul that decides its role, and not the calm or the strife. Father, as we study this small little book, would you help us learn how to set our sails toward joy? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, thanks, Doug. Well, I, answer this, I hope this whole series will help you set your sail toward experiencing joy in the new year. As you do that, uh, one of the ways we want to help you is we're offering more small group opportunities in this next season than probably we've ever offered in our, our church history. So if you want to sign up today or the next few months for groups, we're going to have fast-track Bible groups. It's a chance to go through the entire Bible in eight weeks with a group of folks, uh, two nights a week. Sign up for that. We're going to have Storyform Life groups. If you've never been through Storyform Life, many folks have been through Bible studies their whole life. Uh, did this last year and said it was the first time they really dug in the scripture in a brand new way. I did a couple of weeks on it. It's fantastic. We have women's groups. We have men's groups. Part of what Doug just shared about things naturally grow when you put them in nutrition, you put them in certain soils. This would be a great way in the new year to put yourself in some new soils and you can have affection not only toward God but toward others. In fact, if you, for those of you who uh, have been coming uh, as well here on Sunday, we also have an equipping service at 4.30 on Saturday. So last night, Doug was sharing this message, and I wanted to go home and share with my wife just how much I had affection for her. So I came home and light of his message and said, Honey, I, just, I love you so much that man, you give me constipation. And, uh, you know, that, that didn't go over real well, but I, I tried to apply the message. So uh, we want you to know that we care about you. And we want you to grow, and part of growing is putting yourself in environments where others can speak into your life. So as you go out today, you can go to the registration deck, sign up for those, um, and we will see you all next week for Philippians Part 2. Thanks again.